Hi, everyone, and welcome back for the 30th episode of Take It or Leave It, where we discuss the hottest topics in the world of workplace leaves, absence management, and accommodations. I'm your host, Josh Seidman. As we work our way through the short days and cold nights of winter and inch closer to spring, it's easy to overlook one of the core components, the fundamental aspects of winter that makes winter, well, winter, and that's snow. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Sorry about that, folks. My son uh, drew the short straw and had to hear me belt out a few more lyrics of the 1945 classic over the last few weeks. Why? Well, I personally am a huge fan of snow. I love snowball fights, building a snowman, skiing, even shoveling can be fun or at least a good workout. And after more than two years with barely a dusting in the New York City area, just a few days ago, we saw our first major snowstorm since 2022. My kids and I had a blast building forts and making snow angels, trying to craft the perfect snowball, finding a hill to go sledding, everything you would expect from a great snow day. Despite winter continuing to dump snow and bring chilly temperatures to many regions of the country, things have been heating up in the paid family leave space. 2024 is poised to see a continued surge of activity involving paid family leave. For example, we've already seen proposals for new paid family medical leave mandates in Virginia, Hawaii, New Mexico, and the New Mexico legislation has already passed the state Senate just earlier this month. We've also seen a proposal for a new voluntary paid family medical leave program in Kentucky and proposed amendments to New York's existing paid family leave program to add prenatal leave. Given this excitement and movement, I am so delighted to be joined for today's Take It or Leave It episode by Jason Cantor, HR and Labor Policy Executive with IBM on the company's government and regulatory affairs team. Jason focuses on issues related to the use of AI in employment, labor and employment rules, and employee benefits, such as paid leave, healthcare, and retirement programs. Prior to joining IBM, Jason worked on Capitol Hill for 15 years. Most recently, he worked as a professional staff member on the Democratic staff of the Ways and Means Committee's Worker and Family Support Subcommittee, where he played a key role in the effort to create a national paid leave program and the enactment of the historic expansion and enhancement of unemployment insurance due to COVID-19. He has also worked as a policy advisor on the Joint Economic Committee at the Congressional Affairs Office of the U.S. Department of Labor and, and in the offices of U.S. Senator Jack Reed and U.S. Representative Rosa DeLauro. In these positions, Jason worked on a range of economic and workforce policy and legislative issues. He holds a bachelor's degree in economics and government from Connecticut College and a master's degree in public policy from the University of Chicago, where he was an Irving B. Harris Fellow. A proud native of Swampscott, Massachusetts, Jason currently resides in Alexandria, Virginia, with his wife and two young children. Jason, welcome to Take It or Leave It. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. It's a privilege to join you on behalf of IBM and talk about paid leave. Oh, great, great, Jason. I know you, you and I have, uh, have had quite a few discussions on, on this issue over the last year or so. Can't believe it's, it's already been a year since, uh, since we first met. It's amazing how fast time flies. It does. It goes quick, especially when you've got uh, young kids, as we both know, and uh, especially when you're chasing what the happenings on the hill, which are, are on the present all the time. So exactly, I'll 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 take the young kids any day. <laughs> uh, so to to get us started for today's episode, 
let's just start high level. Can you tell us a bit about your role with IBM? You're in the company's general involvement in the federal paid family leave space and high level details on the basic paid leave and time off offerings uh, by the company. Yeah, happy to. Uh, I work at IBM in our government affairs office on our workforce policy team, where, as you pointed out, I handle HR and labor policy issues. So this includes benefits such as health, retirement, and pay leave. And it also relates to issues like AI and intersection with HR. And so that will overlap with much of our work on Watson X uh, and other company-focused developments. In terms of IBM, We've been around, as most people know, for more than 100 years. Uh, I think it's 113 this year. Um, and we're committed to a people-first uh, workplace culture where we strive to create a supportive, flexible work environment that supports IBMers and their families. And this includes paid time off, critical benefits for that, either welcoming a new child or taking care of themselves or a loved one. Uh, and this is something that we've uh, testified in Congress uh, a couple times in recent years. Uh, as the issue has, you know, come to the front and center in terms of the national discourse. Uh, and we're proud to talk about the benefits, the benefits that we provide. We provide up to 26 weeks of short-term disability benefits. That's 13 weeks at full pay, another 13 weeks at a minimum of two-thirds pay. We provide 12 weeks of parental leave, which is 100% wage replacement. And then we have uh, another bucket that includes family care, uh, marriage, and bereavement. And that will range from three days to four weeks based on circumstance. Uh, and this is, you know, on top of other types of leave, inclusive of, you know, paid sick, long-term disability, et cetera. And we think employers are a key part of the solution. We, you know, we've been doing this. We provide robust benefits, and we're, we're, we're always happy to talk about them. No, wonderful, Jason. Thank, thanks for that overview. Completely agree. You know, employers are and continue to be a key part of the solution in terms of expanding access to to paid leave benefits to workers all over the country. So completely agree with that. Let's dive in. We're going to be talking sort of all things related to federal paid family leave over the course of today's episode. But I do think it would be helpful before we, we really get into the weeds on that topic to help bring our listeners up to speed for those uh, folks who aren't in the know uh, on paid family leave and, and kind of why federal action is such a hot topic. So with that in mind, can you provide a quick overview of the current paid family leave landscape at the state level, uh, as well as any broad thoughts on how these state offerings might differ from one uh, state to the next? Yeah, happy to, Josh. I think it's really helpful to set the table here, talk about uh, you know where we've come from in, 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 in terms of shaping how we see the path ahead. So right now, there is no federal scaffolding or connection to the now 13 states in D.C. that have existing paid family and medical leave programs. These states have you know created access to leave where none existed for so many workers. And so you know, that pursuit is noble and it's making a meaningful impact on, you know, millions of Americans who otherwise wouldn't have access to paid leave. So how did we get here, right? Uh, In terms of those 13 states in DC? Well, it started more than 80 years ago, back in the 1940s, where there was a group of states that created temporary disability insurance. So this is TDI or sometimes it's called short-term disability insurance, but it's all related to own medical leave, right? Uh, you have your own serious health condition and you need time off to take care of yourself because you're in the hospital or have ongoing 
treatment. And so those states uh, are Rhode Island, California, New Jersey, and New York, all in the 1940s created it. Uh, And those are then the next bucket of first actors where it comes to family leave insurance, which started in 2002 with California, as many of your listeners know, and then built on top with New Jersey, Rhode Island, and New York. Uh, And then things pivoted to the what we call the newer states, the newer PFML states, paid family medical leave, that built wholly constructed paid leave programs from the ground up, starting in 2017 with Washington State, D.C., Massachusetts, Connecticut, Oregon, Colorado. And then there's a group of new states in the last two years that I'll call the post-reconciliation effort on the Hill in Delaware, Maryland, Minnesota, and Maine that also have now created programs. Uh, they're not yet paying benefits, but they, they have created programs and they'll, they'll start paying in, in, in the near term. So uh, I think it's suffice to say these, these, these states created programs, but they weren't purposefully connected to one another in any way. And so it's not a criticism, but they do exist in sort of like a silo, right? Just by nature of how they were constructed. And so the fact that they were not built in, to work or function in tandem with one another, I think, is something that we could look to improving upon. And, and, and we'll talk more about that, I know, in, in some of the other uh, issues that we talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Jason, that, that background was, was wonderful. You know, I, I love the, the analogies. You know, it's something I'm, I'm always a big fan of yours. You know, the no scaffolding at the federal level. I love that. You know, that's, that's one of the big reasons why the states have proliferated in the way that they have, because there is no baseline, no, no setup at the federal level that states can look to and latch on to. I also, I, you know, I, I stumbled into this just the other day, too. I can't believe California's paid family leave program is 20 years old. Uh, that, that one caught me by surprise when I saw it the other day. But yes, and, and I think with that wonderful background on, on what's going on at the state and that sort of historical look back, let's switch gears now to the federal level. As you and I and many of our listeners and even many folks who don't specialize in leaves and accommodations uh, issues likely know, and as you, you mentioned a minute ago, the U.S. lacks a federal paid leave mandate that would require private employers to provide paid family medical leave benefits to their employees. There have been efforts in the past to fill this gap, WorkFlex in the 21st Century Act, the Family Act, Build Back Better, and so on. But each of those efforts has fallen short of the finish line, or maybe even of finishing the first leg of the relay race, if you will. You know, just as Thomas Edison wasn't deterred by his many unsuccessful attempts to create the first light bulb, though, Congress is back at it again with a renewed focus on paid family leave. So with all that background and me getting a you know, quick physics uh, note thrown in there, starting with the House of Representatives, can you give us some background on the House and its paid family leave working group, such as what the group is, its focus and activity in 2023, and any involvement IBM uh, has had with the working group uh, last year? Yeah, I would love to take a step back to here because the light's been uh, flickering of sorts for decades now on the paid leave front. I think. You could point to FMLA, right, that started in 1984, and finally, after two vetoes, was the first bill signed into law by President then Clinton in 1993. We actually last uh, Monday celebrated FMLA's 31st anniversary. So much like the longstanding California program, we, uh, you know, this goes, you know, even further back by a number of years. And so paid leave at the federal level started 
in the years right after that, basically, when Senator Dodd, as far as I can tell, in 2002, created or introduced a bill on providing demonstration funding to states in pursuit of paid family medical leave programs. And then I think what most folks are more uh, aware of starting in 07, then Senator Dodd and, and Stevens, or a bipartisan bill, introduced legislation that would build on top of what we've talked about, which would be the, the, the sort of first actors on FLI or family leave insurance on top of the TDI, where there was much more focus you know, nationally on building upon that progress which then transitioned into what we see as the long-standing marker for national program, the Family Act, which has been introduced for now 10 years by Representative DeLauro and Senator Gillibrand. It yeah. was a pleasure to work for Congresswoman DeLauro, uh, my first job out the Hill. I'm incredibly grateful for her long-standing efforts to make progress on this issue that would, for so many, positively impact their lives. So. And also Congressman Neal, the then chair of the Ways and Means Committee, we built out, worked for on the Worker and Family Support Subcommittee for a number of years, most recently before um, transitioning to IBM. And this was a multi-year effort of hearings focused on elevating the need for leave, which then culminated in 2021 with the passage of a national paid leave program as part of the reconciliation effort in November of 2021 that uh, ultimately didn't progress more in the Senate, but was an important watershed moment on showing the ability for for Congress to move something through a chamber, which hadn't happened before. Um, And then that leads us to this new bipartisan House working group on paid leave. Uh, I guess it's not so new now that it's been up and running for over a year. Uh, they launched this in January of 2023, has three Dems and three Republicans led by Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania and Stephanie Bice of Oklahoma. Uh, and they've had over the last year in 2023, I think it's six member level meetings uh, with different key stakeholders, including large employers, uh, which I was fortunate to join in July. Um, and then that culminated in a year end report that was released in December. Uh, I think that brings us up to some of the more recent actions in 2024. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting, Jason. Uh, and such an important points made, you know, and 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 the shout out to your time, both on, on Ways and Means and with Rep DeLauro, some of the, the biggest players that come to mind when, when I'm thinking of activity on paid leave on the Hill, yes. those are the groups and the individuals that sort of come, come to mind most immediately. So uh, great to know that you, you were involved with those efforts and, and, and had a role to play. And I think this seems like a good time for me to ask, given sort of you mentioned a stakeholder meeting from the House Working Group, or the, the multiple stakeholder meetings that they had, but, but focusing on the one that you attended last year, I think it was over the summer, uh, involving large employers. Let me ask this, from the perspective of large employers with operations in multiple states or perhaps even nationwide operations, can you tell our listeners about some of the current challenges that exist for employers when navigating state paid family leave requirements and what action might make sense at the federal level to alleviate some of those challenges? Yeah, I think that's a key fundamental question at play here. So IBM, like many multi-state employers, has been providing on a longstanding basis Uh, robust and effective paid leave benefits. So we're not part of the quote-unquote like access problem that states are looking to build on. So 
our main problem at IBM is our inability to offer an equitable benefit across our workers, regardless of state. Right now, across those uh, mentioned 13 states in D.C., we can't actually design a benefit that will fulfill all of the approval of these states across them. So basically, the fact that they haven't been created and to function with one another means that their rules and regulations and definitions will vary. And so while they may provide or most states allow for employer provided leave, they haven't built that approval process in an interconnected way across themselves. So some of the advantages to the IBM program, like in many other companies, is it differs in terms of uh, some basic social insurance constructs. So this will involve you know, features in a, in a state program that aren't relevant in the context of employer-provided leave, for instance, in many cases. So at IBM, this, this means more fundamentally, right, that we provide leave on a first-dollar, first-hour basis, I like to say. You know, there's no tenure or earnings requirements. B, we don't have a maximum weekly benefit amount, which is, I think, a, a core construct of a social insurance program is that you cap the amount of benefits, even within a progressive wage replacement structure, up to a particular amount in a week. Uh, which will, you know, limit for for middle and upper work, income class workers. Will 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 reduce the overall wage replacement level. And then C, we provide uh, 100% wage replacement, which is, uh, you know, means that people are made whole to be able to afford, you know, taking time off and still pay their their expenses. And then this benefit is is portable, right? It, it doesn't matter, regardless of where you live or work as an IBMer, you would receive those same benefits, you know, regardless of the amount of time that you work in office or work at home or whether you work on different functions or, or how that's spread across over our calendar year. And then lastly, taking one type of paid leave isn't going to restrict your ability to take other types of paid leave. These are distinct buckets that don't draw down in an aggregate form, right? They have their own use and and that allows for a lot of flexibility. Yeah, that's that's great. Really helpful to think through what some of those challenges are because they're varied and they can impact different employers in different ways. But when you look at the landscape of these laws as you as you were getting to and that they are growing and proliferating, they exist in silos. And each of them carries, you know, a couple of dozen substantive conditions, right, with them. So even though, as you said, there are these private plan options under the majority of, the, of those 14 programs, the fact that employers who do have operations across multiple of these states, they can't have sort of a one-size-fits-all approach given the variations of the substantive requirements, that then trickles down to the employer and creates a whole layer of challenges, both for the company and their workers, right? The complexities impact you know, the, the, the full picture of the employment relationship. So I know I, I'm with you. And, and you know, as a point that you made earlier about you know, the importance of the employer-provided benefits in this space and, and helping to move the ball forward. And I think the examples you gave really illustrate uh, IBM's focus on that point. So we'll come back to the House Working Group, I think, in just a minute or two here. But do want to look elsewhere in Congress because the House is not the only uh, area where we have seen federal paid leave activity in recent months. So can you tell us uh, about any other federal paid leave activity that you're aware of that took place in 2023, such as involving the Senate uh, or otherwise, and how IBM has been involved with some of, of, of those developments? Yeah, I'd love to, Josh. Uh, I think 
First off, there's a new dad's caucus that started in 2023. And they, in September, in the fall, had a roundtable with members uh, to discuss paid leave and childcare. I think as a dad myself, it's, it's really important to speak to the broad family dynamics at play in terms of you know taking time to take care of your family members and other loved ones, particularly in how that's evolved over time in recent years. And so I think their voice is really needed as part of growing support overall for these types of policies and looking ahead. Um, that's led by Jimmy Gomez, a congressman from California, and others, including Mark Vesey from Texas or Seth Magaziner from Rhode Island and a number of other members who, like us, are, are, are young, younger, quote-unquote, dads, I think, uh, and trying to navigate a, 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 a work-life balance uh, among a lot of other dynamics, which could be a good segue to just share some more personal insights into my background. So I'm a father. I've got two amazing young kids, but my oldest son, uh, who does turn now six next month, was diagnosed with leukemia in January of 2021. You know, this was, he was three years old at the time. And I think their whole world turns upside down, to say the least. We spent 32 days in the hospital. He got a port, procedures. You know, you don't even know what it is at first. When you go in, they just say it points to cancer. And then you're on a roller coaster of emotions to just make sure that, you know, your kid is going to be okay. At the time, my wife was uh, 26 weeks pregnant with our second baby. in the middle of COVID, obviously. But, you know, kids are resilient and while the toll that it takes on families is unimaginable, I think, you know, physically, mentally, uh, emotionally, right, the fact that you just switch into survival mode, it, it just resonates to me firsthand how meaningful and necessary paid leave is to keep families together and ensure that they or their loved ones can get the treatment they need. So I'm, I'm proud to say that you know, we finished treatment in, in June of last year after two and a half years. And so I've just been trying to channel that spirit in an effort to raise awareness of the fact that when we talk about pay and leave, we're not talking numbers, we're not talking just state programs, we're not talking employers with burdens, we're talking about real people and, and, and trying to drive changes to make improvements on how these function, which for many people are at a time where you know, they're not able to process a lot of information to say the least because they're overwhelmed with the circumstances at hand. And so I think usability and navigation and simplicity is just a really key dynamic when you're talking about having to ask someone to, to figure out how to you know, make ends meet while they are full time. So focused on something that's happening in their own lives. So the other to, to your point on other legislative or other action on the Hill, the Senate side has been involved, too. In October, they had their first ever full committee hearing in Senate finance on paid leave. I think another important public-facing barometer of the growing coalescing around the need to take action on paid leave, given the United States is such an exception across other industrialized countries with the lack of access to paid leave. Uh, you know, IBM was proud to submit a statement pointing to the need for coordination and harmonization across states. And we look forward to continuing to be involved in those negotiations or those efforts in the Senate as they, as they unfold looking ahead. 
Well, I, I'm going to say, you know, from a as a start, well, thank you for the response and for for opening up and sharing your family story, you know, with me, with our listeners. Uh, as mentioned earlier, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a father. I have, I have two kids as well, around the same age as yours. I, I can't imagine how challenging that experience was for you and your family. But I, I'm so glad to hear that your son is, is doing better. You know, you said kids are resilient. Absolutely, they are. Par- parents are, too. You know, and uh, your family, your son, you know, so lucky to have you and your wife there. And I'm, uh, you know, excited to hear how his birthday goes uh, next month. You know, it's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, it's exciting. Yeah. The bottom line is you, you got to be there. There's no, you don't have any other choice. Sort of pretend like an employee has this choice of whether to be in the hospital with someone who's literally under, to say the minor is to say the least, you know, under Mm -hmm. five years old, Uh, you know, they can't be by themselves and they need their they need their parents um, first and foremost. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I appreciate like-minded fathers, uh, you know, thinking about this holistically. Yeah, no, right, right back at you. It's, you know, it's stories like, like yours, it's the real world challenges it's major life moments i mean that that is what the whole function of paid leave is is meant you know meant to address so no thank you thank you for sharing and you know as as we've we've sort of said to to bring us back to you know to some of these developments uh, at, at the congressional level the, the the senate finance committee hearing being the first ever full committee hearing on, on this issue the new dad's caucus forming you know which which i mean both steps forward right two important examples of the different layers that paid leave has had in 2023 you know with that all being said right the, the paid leave as as you and i've spoken about earlier today and 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 in the past you know paid leave still does need to be well thought out you know, not impose undue hardships and burdens and challenges on companies and workers. It's like you said, simplicity is, is kind of key when workers are navigating these major life events, right? And and looking to, to not have to go through these administrative hurdles to make it, right, to make it to uh, their, their leave and to, to enjoy and at least you know, be there for their family during those those important life events. So with all that being said, you know, and obviously it's been a ton of activity in the last 12 months that we've covered already. That isn't everything that's gone down with federal paid leave prospects just since late 23 and, and into you know the first you know, handful of weeks of 2024. You know, in December right of last year, significant news kind of broke when a bipartisan group of, of senators and House members released a request uh, to key stakeholders for input on paid leave proposals. So let's maybe just spend a minute there. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about this request for information, your RFI, right? A lot of folks are calling it unpaid leave. You know, who are some of the senators and House members involved in issuing the RFI? What information did they, they seek from the, the stakeholders that were, were included in the RFI? any of the questions kind of get at these issues that you and I've covered so far today that are most impactful for employers, things like things like that? Yeah, this is another important uh, mark in the developments in the coalescing in Congress about, I think, a top line need to make progress on the lack of access to paid leave nationally. So this RFI or request for information was released uh, in mid-December. Uh, it was due in late January. It was put out by a group of House and Senate members on both sides of the aisle. There were six senators involved, led by Kirsten Gillibrand and Bill Cassidy. And then on the House side, it's effectively a link to the bipartisan House working group efforts that they have, too, with, with, with Chrissy Houlihan and uh, Stephanie Bice and other members. And so together, they released this 
information request to call upon key stakeholders, right? And that inclusive of business, but also uh, business trades or worker advocates or nonprofit organizations to all opine and provide their expertise on, on shaping what they should be thinking about when it comes to how to expand access. So this is very much like a, a fact-finding, right, inform our efforts, call to action, um, but an important step. Um, and, and I think a strong signal by virtue of the breadth of members on both sides of the aisle that are joining together to make this, you know, request of the public uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, shaping what efforts could come politically from that. So um, we were happy to uh, join in those who submitted a statement and, and very pleased that they are uh, devoting, you know, that significant amount of energy to, to wading through those responses. Wow. Uh, that's, that's really interesting stuff, Jason, and, and agree, important development. Let, let me stick with the RFI for just a second here. W- what does the fact that a bicameral, bipartisan group of senators and House yeah. members kind of came together and issued this RFI on federal paid leave say about the momentum around this issue from 2023 and, and heading into the next you know, 10 plus months of 2024? Yeah, I think it speaks volumes to where we are on paid leave and the progress made over the last several decades that even now in a arguably very polarized political environment, we've got members on both sides of the aisle, uh, particularly on the, the, the further right or the further left that are both speaking from the same song sheet, which is about the need to provide access to this to workers across the country so that they can you know, take care of themselves at a level one and not, you know, lose everything to be quite literally. So it speaks to the popularity overall. It also speaks to the fact that these members think they can, they can run on this as an issue, right? And win. Uh, and I think it speaks to a call, like sort of the inevitability of what's to come, which is more states joining the 13 in DC uh, and building these programs because of this still current status quo, which is not all workers have access to it. So I think all those things combined show that despite, you know, the the shared uh, um, political party structure now across Congress doesn't mean that members aren't focused on ways that they can come together and pursue real progress to make real change in people's lives. That's great. It's great, Jason. I teased this next question a little bit earlier, but I'd, I'd like to bring us back for another minute to the House Paid Family Leave Works Group. In addition to joining the Senate uh, to issue the, the Paid Family Leave RFI that we were just discussing, the House Working Group has continued to push the proverbial paid family leave ball forward in just the first month and a half or so of 2024. In particular, last month, the Working Group released a paid family leave policy framework. And, and you know, can you just tell us a little bit about that framework, you know, some of the high-level details of what it included? Yeah, this is a really exciting development. I think despite, the, again, the decades-long sequence of actions that have happened to get us to where we are, we've got a group of House members that, as I mentioned before, had six-member level meetings with key stakeholders in 2023 that have now led to this point where they've released uh, last month a policy framework that has four pillars to it, uh, and they all have different targets in terms of 
what issue or problem they're attempting to improve upon, right? We've been focused at IBM on the, the second pillar, which relates to coordination and harmonization um, so that, you know, multi-state employers can be able to thread the needle across existing programs and offer an equitable benefit. But there's some other pillars related to other target audiences, the first of which is the public-private partnership in terms of states that are looking to, to set up programs. Uh, the third pillar is on small employer pooling, which I, the target would be uh, small business. And then the fourth is about this existing tax credit called the Fisher Tax Credit, it's 45S in the tax code for the, the tax wonks, which is a paid leave credit for uh, small businesses and working families to be able to um, help share, you know, help mitigate some of the costs for businesses. So. I think that provides a, a snapshot of, of what was included in the policy framework. I'd love to dive into uh, any of those, uh, specifically the, the second pillar on coordination and harmonization, if that's of interest. Yeah, no, me, me, me as well. Let's let's look on that snapshot for a second. You know, we're thinking about this concept of harmonization, equivalency, consistency, and the like. We've spoken about this at various times uh, during today's episode. So that's the second pillar, right, that you mentioned, right? This coordination and harmonization of, of paid leave across the states. Um, and, and, you know, they, they call out, I think, this, you know, the acronym IPLAN. And you, you, you exist in the least for a day. You'll hear, you know, three, four dozen acronyms tossed around. So we've got, you know, one of the newest ones, this, this iPlan or interstate paid leave action network. Uh, that's especially tantalizing to, to me. So, you know, what are your thoughts on this second pillar and particularly the iPlan component? You know, do you think it would help multi-state and nationwide employers better navigate the patchwork of, of existing state paid leave laws? And do you see any, you know, gaps or potential shortcomings with, with that part of the proposal? Yeah, all great questions. I'd love to talk about the I plan. The key focus is that A on action, right? Is is building something that doesn't exist now, which is a bridge across states. You could call it a, a shared foundation, right? So that these buildings that they've constructed that are their pay leave programs have ways to move across them in a in a functional dynamic that doesn't involve say like an employer exiting from the, the ground floor and walking across the street and then entering again and going upstairs in, in terms of continuing that metaphor of sorts physically. So uh, to start, maybe maybe it's helpful to paint a picture too on on where things are in other social insurance programs, because you've got a, a national association of state workforce agencies, they call themselves NASWA. They've been around since the 30s, right? And they were built uh, up uh, then as a consequence of, of states uh, paying unemployment compensation and then realizing real quick, <laughs> almost 100 years ago, that they were going to face difficult implementation problems about you know, figuring out how to provide benefits across states. You know, there's workers who work in more than one state, there's workers who move to a new state, and they realized then, which I think is a parallel construct to paid leave, that they needed to work together to do things better, right? Uh, to have an interstate connection that fundamentally is operationally built across uh, having agreements, right? That mean that states will, will, will share uh, an approach to make things easier on themselves, but quite frankly, to make it easier for people to navigate through simplicity and through, you know, a shared approach that eliminates a lot of the complexities in terms of navigation. So, but, but, but looping back on the I plan, you know, I like to say that the I plan is about building a table, right? Building a physical table effectively for states 
that have programs, the 13 in DC, to to convene, right, to meet and to have the ability to pursue these interstate agreements, um, to adopt shared standards, definitions, requirements, uh, processes. So you need, if you're going to have a table built in, in states around it, you need an administering uh, intermediary, I, I say, um, that has experience uh, in this uh, complex world of, of benefit payment programs across states to be able to leverage that expertise, um, which you know, relates substantively, but also technologically too. Uh, and that's a good pivot to the to the sort of first bedrock of the pursuit of these interstate agreements, which would be a, a standardized technological system, a technology-based system for states with programs to share claimant wage history. So right now, which may surprise some, is you know these paid leave states right now don't have an ability to process anything related to an interstate claim, right? If you have wages in multiple states, there's no method for you to go to one state and have that state have access to these other wages in order to provide you with, a, I guess, a more reflective uh, benefit amount in terms of your overall work and, and tenure. Um, and then the second uh, leg to this stool uh, would be what I call an equivalency standard, which would be a, a method to, to streamline and account for more generous employer-provided benefits. Um, so this relates to how, as I mentioned before, uh, many employers like IBM, we don't have maximum weekly benefit amounts, right? We don't have, I guess we have the ultimate progressive wage replacement because it's in most circumstances 100%. <laughs> So like when you when you interplay weeks in duration, you get a very high amount of benefits being provided to a worker, right? That's effectively reflective of what they're already making. Uh, and so when an, a state has a list of factors in how they evaluate employer-provided leave to be generally at least as good as, they have a more of a checklist that doesn't account for that dynamic relationship between factors like, you know, weekly amounts and duration. And so this is speaking to how there's a better way to evaluate that quantitative benefit that employers are providing to workers. And that would allow, you know, multi-state companies to be able to thread the needle and find a way to offer a, a high level of benefits across state, regardless of, of what might, you know, be under the hood more granularly in each of these states. But the third leg of the stool is uh, what I call the, the qualitative benefit elements. So these are, and you mentioned this before, the the dizzying list of differences across states in the policy and operation that also relate back to employer-provided leave. And so an employer can't design a benefit program to satisfy, you know, uh, different definitions across states that either conflict with one another or don't marry together in a way that presents an opportunity to, to do something in a, in a more standardized way. And so, again, I think there's a real uh, pathway to, you know, bringing states to the table and having them talk about some of these differences and where ways that they could um you know, come to uh, an agreement on 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 one pathway again that doesn't that 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 builds on access that 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 makes things better for people and states and workers. So I'm really um, excited about the potential of the I plan because, as we've talked about or you said at the outset, you know, there's a number of other states that are looking to create programs and 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 you know that's quite understandable given the still longstanding in a, uh, lack of access for, for too many. Um, and so I think this, this progress 
uh, on iPlan is meaningful because I think it is a way for stakeholders to all end up better and 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 find a functional way to to, to do something that, quite frankly, is modern. But yet, as we talked about, it dates back to many decades prior and other social insurance constructs. You know, this isn't reinventing a new wheel. It's effectively borrowing some of the uh, plans for how to do that and, and, and doing it different, but but also not doing it in a, a completely novel way. So. Yeah, that's great, Jason. So much good detail, and I appreciate you going really uh, into the nuances of, of iPlan and what it what it could look like. You know, I think the key is, as you sort of have outlined, is that you know it, you have those three. I think it was three legs of of the stool, as you yep. were describing. Yep. And and how each of those are necessary, right? It's not just setting up the data sharing, but it's also, yep. you know, in addition to, to making data sharing more accessible from one state to the next, given the growth of and the you know, significant growth of employees working in, in hybrid roles where they spend some time working at home and for their, their employer in the office or in the workplace, and those happen to be in different yeah. states. Uh, but yeah. also driving harmonization, right? It has to be sort of a focus on doing that harmonization, that consistency and equivalency in a meaningful way, both both qualitatively and quantitatively, as you as you outlined so, so articulately. So thank you for that. That's great. Let me ask, you know, just in, in terms of that first pillar of the, the framework, Right, this will be my, my second to last question for you. <laughs> in terms of that first pillar, right, the public-private partnership that you mentioned a few minutes back that discusses the working group basically considering a new program that would help more states right, go above and beyond the 13-plus BC that we, we've been mentioning on this episode, yep. go, go above that threshold number and help more states establish a paid leave program uh, that's right for them. And, and the, the working group framework describes it would do that through this public-private partnership to facilitate standing up and operating these state-run programs. Does IBM have any concerns with this first pillar and the fact that it seems, at least on the surface at first glance, to sort of butt heads with the goal of coordination and harmonization of paid leave benefits across the states in that second pillar that we were just discussing? Yeah, I think it's a reflection of where things are going, which is more states creating more programs. And so I think there's an opportunity in terms of the I plan to have an ability for states to click in. So if the interstate agreements across states are created and they grow and improve upon themselves, then a new state potentially could, you know, more aptly fit together with those. And that will allow them to not have to create a program, not from scratch, because there's you know longstanding key components to these programs in states, but they are still forced to, in isolation of one another, create these programs, especially when you move past the law to the to standing them up, right, from a from an administrative construct. Yeah. And so I think there's I think that these things can be married together in a way, again, to to build upon progress, right? The fact that there are no interstate agreements, at least happening in a formal way beyond, I think, some select states having a recognition that they need, for instance, like in Washington and Oregon, a place of performance document that'll provide some guidance to people as they figure out, hey, I work in Oregon or I live in Washington or I I did both or I, you know, switch jobs or like, where do I go for benefits? So those states are realizing they need to find common ground on how they'll evaluate that eligibility to, to not create conflicts, right? So I think that there's a, a precedent for it. And I think that there's a way 
for the new states that do come along in the absence of, again, a national paid leave bill like Family Act or what passed the House in Reconciliation in 2021 to to sort of uh, set the table uh, for how to how to build this better. Yep. Great stuff. Great stuff. Final question. Do you have a sense of what might be next? You know, what steps might be yeah. working group, congressmen and women yeah. who are part of the RFI from the Senate and the House that we spoke about, um, additional stakeholder meetings, reports and findings and so forth. So what's your crystal ball kind of saying might, might be coming down the pipe? Yeah, I mean, we've run through the uh, litany of longstanding efforts on the pay leave front. And so I think it's on those shoulders looking ahead uh, when you point to this House Working Group, particularly with their policy framework that came out, they're clear about their goals, right, which is to pass legislation by the end of 2024. And, and this is what they've said themselves. This isn't, you know, me putting any words in any mouth. So I think there's a shared, I think that's the recognition of the shared urgency, the shared recognition of the urgency um, to make headway on this issue, because it's just too important for too many people to not build the pieces and, and make progress politically on the pursuit of those right now in 2024, or is it more than, more than any other time? And so I guess uh, they, it would be important to note that th- there was a, a virtual meeting last week with the Bipartisan House Working Group uh, specifically on the iPlan. I think that speaks to, again, that uh, timeliness of the moment that we have here uh, to, to make progress. I was in that meeting as where a number of other key stakeholders from you know, the, the worker advocate side or from other businesses and, and other uh, research arms. And so I think there's a real lane here for folks to find shared agreement on ability to do this better. Right. Uh, and, and so I'm, uh, I'm internally optimistic on a lot of things in life, but I'm also optimistic that, uh, you know, the rising tide that is more folks concentrating on paid leave, you know, whether it's, you know, ways and means and, and finance or whether it's the longstanding champions of family act that go back decades and, you know, are still uh, being heralded. I think there's a, a, a big opportunity to continue to carry the ball and make progress on this. And I'm, ha- I'm just pleased that uh, at IBM, we can just be one voice, you know, among many to help inform those efforts um, as we look ahead uh, to what could come. Wonderful. Jason, thank you so, so much for spending some time with us today and sharing your insights on the latest with the country's state and federal paid leave activity. There's so much going on. So thank you for keeping it all straight for us. Thanks for having me, Josh. I really did appreciate our conversation. And uh, if any of your listeners, just to put a plug, are interested in talking about the iPlan or paid leave, you know, they can welcome to reach out to you or me on LinkedIn and what have you. I think, again, uh, the more voices uh, the louder the chorus will be on a call to action. And, and, and so I, I really appreciate this opportunity to join you on your podcast and talk. Oh, the, 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 exactly, Jason. No, it, it's likewise uh, always wonderful to hear your thoughts and chat with you. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for, for everything, for joining us. And we will be continuing our discussion on federal paid leave activity in the coming weeks when I'll be joined by a senior staff member from Representative Chrissy Houlihan's team, who, as Jason mentioned, is the co-chair of the House Paid Family Leave Working Group. And we'll be diving further into the world of federal paid leave prospects during that episode. So thank you to Jason and thank you to our listeners for tuning in for today's episode. We'll see you next time.